0: My guest today is Sridhar Vembu. Sridhar is the founder and chief executive officer of Zoho, a software company that offers a suite of tools covering nearly 50 independent applications from front office and back office products to customer relationship management to workforce productivity and collaboration bundled within an offering called Zoho One. In this interview, we discuss an overview of Zoho's evolution across the years, why Sridhar is elected to keep his company private and has not sought outside investors. We discuss his plan to expand the company's offices from major cities to rural areas in some cases. Additionally, we cover Zoho's participatory and informal culture, which is a focus on treating people well, including offering nap and playrooms for its employees. Sridhar also shares how the company is responding to COVID-19, his views on the future of mobile workforces, and a variety of other topics. Well, Sridhar Vembu, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Great to be here. Yes, Sridhar. Uh, I I thought we'd begin with your company, Zoho. Uh, Maybe you could take a moment for those who may be less familiar with the company to provide a bit of an overview of its offering.
1: Zoho, we refer to ourselves as the operating system for business. And If you look at our overall uh, suite of products at Zoho.com, you will see a very comprehensive offering covering all aspects of of the business, from the front office, back office. Uh, from CRM to uh, workforce productivity and collaboration, all of it. So it is a really comprehensive suite, and we bundle all of that also as an offering called Zoho One, which provides a a really affordable uh, all-employee pricing covering that whole comprehensive suite of nearly 50 independent applications around, and all of this on the cloud and mobile. And uh, it's uh, really one of a kind. Offering and we have built this. Obviously, this something like this could not have been built in a day. We, have been, we are a company of about 25 years in existence, and we are about 8,000 employees uh, spread around the world. And uh, and we actually have built it for this era in a way because everything is in the cloud. And I am actually working from a remote uh, village in southern India, deep south of India, and I've been running this company now and. And the other thing about this company is we are private. We never took any outside money, so that Allah that's the freedom to innovate and, and stick to our our principles.
0: That, that is such an interesting aspect of this. Uh, a, a software company to have grown so so large, uh, and yet not to have accepted any outside capital, offering you, as you point out, Streeter, the the liberty to take this company where you wish and grow at the pace yeah. that you wish.
1: Um, talk uh, about that. We have about three million users around the world hmm. registered, and uh, about four hundred thousand paid organizations so it's uh, pretty high up there and uh, and it's distributed around the world about 40 45% us 55% outside uh, so that's how that distribution is
0: right that's fantastic. For our customer base yes Thank you for that overview. If you, As you think back a quarter century ago, Streeter, when you started the company, what were your ambitions at that time? Where, where did you see yourself uh, growing? As you mentioned, it wasn't built in a day. It's been a series of, of uh, growth projects, so to say, uh, additional yeah. offerings added along the way and so forth. What was your original, the sort of genesis idea, so to say, uh, when you founded the firm?
1: Yeah. So we actually, the uh, from the early days, I'm a software engineer electrical engineer originally by training, and then I got into software. I still write code, by the way, I still write code. So, which means that I wanted a company that is uh, a really good environment for engineers to go and invent and innovate. And, uh, And we have to be a business because we have to pay our bills, but it has to focus on innovation and engineering sound principles. From the beginning that focus on engineering, treating people right, treating customers right, kind on of a long-term focus. I actually always thought of it as a, my last job I would hold. and okay? I started the company, I said, I'll, I'll be here you know, all life, essentially. It's like a life commitment. And the business evolved right, along with the market. 25 years, years ago, there was not a cloud to play in. But, in fact, the name of the company was not Zoho. But we renamed the company after our successful product line once we got into the cloud. That happened about 10, 12 years ago. So like that, I mean, we have evolved the company with the times and what the market demands and all of that. Or, But some of the core principles have stayed the same. And the people, that is the key part of it, where people stick with us. And that meant there is a continuity of thinking, culture. So from the beginning, that was, those were the focal areas. Why did I like that? I basically wanted a company where I would love to work for, for life. <laughs> so that was
0: there. That was the idea. So that's great, and and, and you had this, you know, what, what would at least in some circles be uh, a radical thought process. You know, so many uh, technology organizations have a philosophy of, uh, and I'm I'm paraphrasing what others have said, but entrepreneurship equals financing in some ways, whereas yeah. you really from the get-go focused on the growth of customers, revenues, and ultimately profits uh, at an early stage, yes. not not growing uh, as so many do for years and years without any profitability. Um, right. Right. And, and I wonder, you know, w- was there ever a temptation for that? It sounds like philosophically that runs contrary to what you were thinking. But as you looked at the competitive landscape, and perhaps that wasn't a focus of yours to, to review the competitive landscape necessarily so much, but uh, well, I wonder if there was ever any temptation to go the more traditional route for, for growth.
1: I actually, we the venture capital is used to court us heavily at that time. Now we are uh, actually even bigger than what uh, VCs. We could take the company public because it's, it's bigger than many public companies out there. So you know, with eight thousand employees and all that. But we basically, we you know, I looked at the VC term sheets, what their portfolio companies end up doing, and I realized that this is not what we want to become. And I am not interested in that aspect and and this is necessarily a financially minded investor is exit focused they have to be they need an exit or liquidity in about 10 years or whatever and which is different motivation from a founder sometimes right i i'm not interested in taking a liquidity for my uh figure. i want to run this company now operate this company and uh, and treat people well and take care of people all of that so those the priorities are different right and necessarily and and I know that in the short run, those priorities won't come in conflict, but longer term they do. And whenever you know I talk to entrepreneurs who have taken the VC route, and you ask them five years later, they'll tell you, you know, I really lost, we lost our way because of the financial pressure, the quarter to quarter pressure, all of that. So that's what I wanted to insulate our company from. So early on, maybe within the first two, three years, three years later, that we the VCs as would they would call us. It's sometimes you know when you are two million revenue and they'll say we can accelerate you to two hundred million fast. It, uh, it you would consider the matter, but we looked at it and decided that comes with a huge string attached and we don't want to do that, so we just rejected it. So.
0: You talked about the importance, Sridhar, of culture and that, uh, in many ways, actually, these decisions have impacted the kind of culture that you have, and you've benefited from some people who've been there practically since the beginning with you, many of them, it sounds like. Can you talk, take a moment yeah. and describe the company's culture? Yeah.
1: So, really, the Zoho culture, there's multiple aspects to it. It is you. is, first of all, it's very informal. I mean, we don't have the… In fact, we are even… Our, disallow very formal titles inside. People are not title-driven inside, meaning people have very different kinds of titles. Titles are only for conveying something to the external world. If somebody is engaging with customers, they may have some title, but internally, there is very little of that thing. And um, it means that we focus on, we organize teams of people into teams, and there'll be a, somebody who heads a team to provide direction and leadership. And we require that we have a very participatory culture. I'll give you an example. I run something called the Town Hall, which is built into our software, the Zoho Connect software, where every about uh, two, three weeks, every month, once in a while, I run it on a, a periodic basis. Whenever there is a, for example, COVID times, I run it, kind of thing. And What is critical is people get to ask anonymous questions because that's when people will be more freer to speak their mind what they're going to say. And they would ask me tough questions like, you know, what is our direction here? Why are we not doing well in this market? Why are we doing well in that market? Things like that. And there is very, you know, internally we have a very flourishing such culture. They would directly ask me those. If they can ask me those, they can ask anybody those kinds of questions, right? So that's a. So it combines that element of being self-critical about our own products, our own shortcomings, all of that, and treating the customer first. And one. In fact, one of the key, as an example, is we never outsource things like customer support. Customer support is a very critical role in Zoho, so we actually pay people well. We treat it as a major career path for people. We don't actually uh, treat it as an expendable L1 tech kind of thing, So, which means that we want low turnover in customer support. When we have low turnover in customer support, generally, they will tend to take care of customers better, and that will result in better satisfaction in the customers' I will recommend other customers, and they will tend to stay with you. So these are all some of the aspects of culture you can see. And most importantly, I emphasize the virtue of being humble, and both in our feelings internally and externally. So our marketing also emphasize humility as a virtue of marketing. It's not something that most uh, tech companies would do, but I really emphasize that it is important that we don't over-project ourselves. Don't oversell ourselves, all of that. That again comes from not having to, you know, next quarter I don't have to meet an 80% or 200% growth target that VCs have set. So we can actually, we can afford these principles. That's the key. Because being able to afford these principles also is important. We pay our own way and we have committed people, people who appreciate these things. Occasionally somebody may think that, hey, you know, our marketing is not aggressive enough. And I remind them, you know, we don't want to over-promise. Ever. so it's not a good idea ever so those are the things that I, I emphasize it's part of the culture yeah.
0: I've also read uh, Srider that you've uh, long been a proponent of managing work not people uh, and yeah. leading towards outcomes uh, and as you think about the way in which uh, you know people work you, you offer them a lot of liberty as to how they structure their days and uh, I understand some of your offices have you know uh, free free lunches uh, places to play in addition to places to work. Talk a bit about that philosophy. And
1: places uh, to, actually, places to take a nap. One <laughs> thing that I insist on in most offices, we have uh, nap rooms, because you know, given the reality of this kind of work, sometimes you get tired, and after like a whole day of meetings and this and that, you just want to go lie down for some time. We encourage it actually. People get back fresh, and uh, there is that's that's recognizing the human need. You know, if you. So we actually are we uh, you know the joke is that we pay people to go sleep. <laughs> you no, know? because they, they would have taken a customer meeting and or something that you know solved a tough problem. And the most critical thing at that point is an app. So we have that too. And we always provide food, and that's an important part of our culture, because a lot of informal exchanges happen over food. As you know, in the real world, right? And it happens the same in the company, a lot of friendships are made. And a lot of informal exchanges happen so food is an, an, a fundamental element and then uh, uh, we also have uh, you know, wherever possible we have play rooms all of that so we think holistically about uh, an employee's uh, well-being and in fact we, in some of our offices we have started clinics where there's a doctor uh, available when the numbers permit right we have to have we don't have if you have 10 people it doesn't make sense but we have thousand people it makes sense so we have done that too. And that means that when a doctor is presented and you take care of basic things, that also adds to the overall sense of wellness the company. So that is the idea.
0: You've also added a university, Zoho University, uh, to help educate the next generation of, of uh, staff. I shouldn't say generation, but the next round, even of staff oh, yeah. uh, to join Zoho. In many cases, people that would not necessarily be traditional, you know, university set, for example. Talk a little bit about the philosophy of developing your own university and the goals you have for that.
1: That came about from uh, the need to, you know, from a uh, of course, we are growing constantly. In fact, uh, our expansion rate of staff in the last two, three years has been about 25 30% per year, every year. So we have to grow at that pace to keep up uh, our headcount. It has slowed down, of course, in the pandemic year, but it's going to speed up soon, I hope. And that one thing that I learned early on is formal credentials don't convey really any serious meaning in terms of how somebody can do their job. So you have fancy credentials, but a person may not actually do well on the job and vice versa. Somebody who who has poor credentials, but still may be great at their job. So how do you find them? How do we do this? We realized that one of the ways to do that is uh, train people ourselves, particularly at the entry level. So We invest a lot in training, and Zoe University was born as a result of that, where we bypass college credentials entirely. We create our own credentialing, our own program to prepare staff for our work, and uh, that's what we call ZO University, and now it's renamed ZO Schools of Learning, and it's uh, going to be a broader theme there. And um, we actually take about 200, 250 uh, students actually, and they come in from high school, pretty much they are 18 year olds, sometimes 17 year olds too, and um, then they go through about a rigorous hands-on about a year of uh, um, uh, uh, really uh, heavy training and instruction, and then they go apprentice in a team for about six months and then they become regular employees. So, when, uh, within about two years, people tend to become regular employees as opposed to four years in a regular college. And we pay them to do it, they don't pay us, we pay them a stipend. And the reason we do that is we want them to be committed to this. We want them, and we want actually, they're, they're, along with this, there is another thing. We could fire them if they don't show up. They don't do their. In other words, you could get fired for not doing your homework (laughs) because we're paying you, right? So that is uh, those those accountability comes in, and people who come in like you know there's a childish playfulness uh, maybe at 17, but they get serious once they get paid and they know I have a responsibility here. So and that actually has a a, a good uh, you know people grow up in Zaw. And this has become now uh, about 30 40% of our hiring actually already, this program. And we are expanding it.
0: And that expansion is going to be into the US and, as well. Did I did I hear that correctly?
1: Yes, exactly, in Austin, yeah. And um, in the US, we are now planning, in fact, this is our new post pandemic plan. We are planning a lot of small rural offices, including this very village I'm in right now. We are planning a, a 20 30 seat office here. But similarly, a lot of them around will be dotting the landscape with small centers like this which should uh, both be local employment of course and, and but feeding low you know basically local problems helping customers locally so customer support we are going to localize heavily now and uh, also even software development everything people in other words i'm now embracing this whole remote work idea but with a twist that you're not working from home Per se, Many people, you know, some people like it, but many people do need the social stimulus of going and meeting coworkers, all of that on a regular basis. So we are actually uh, planning these rural offices and in the U.S. also, we are now looking for a couple of those, uh, so -so. We we are actually going to start that experiment. So our expansion, we have about 100 employees in the U.S. We are going to grow that to 200 or so in the next two, three years. But most of that expansion will happen through these rural centers, not in big cities.
0: Very interesting. This is uh, emblematic. The the, um, the the schools that you've developed is emblematic of the the radical degree to which it seems your company is vertically integrated, uh, for lack yeah. of a better way of framing it. I, I, I as I've heard uh, from our common yeah. friend and your colleague Timothy Casby that uh, you know the, some of the artists, some of the art that's on, that's on the wall is produced by artists who are employees of the company. Uh, the people. That was- cook in your cafeterias are, again, employees, whereas most companies outsource that. Uh, yeah. You know The people who put on your conferences, again, are very stereotypically a right. outsourced function. Again, employees for you.
1: Um, yeah, be- uh, I'll explain the reason. We are doing this. If some activity is happening routinely every day in our company, I mean, events we are holding. We used to hold about 100, 150 events per year around the world. So we have our own full staff to go and present and do all of that. Does it makes sense to do this, and then there is a consistency, there is a learning, and there is actually a passion to do this, passion to represent the company. All of that. That's why we do that.
0: That's interesting, and, and I'm curious. Um, how have you thought about? I mean, it almost seems like you you hesitate to outsource almost anything that you prefer to keep things uh, inside the organization to to have. It, is, it seems like a real cultural attribute. Uh, dis- describe that, if you would.
1: Yeah. No, we do buy. I mean. Uh, Wherever there is, it makes sense to buy. We buy things. A lot of in data center, of course, all, all of the stuff is bought, and uh, and so we have supplier networks. For example, we don't we don't actually employ our own uh, transportation services. Just to give you an example, <laughs>
0: right?
1: Well, all the people who are shuttles, we provide shuttles for employees, but all that is outside companies that do that for us. So there is uh, you know this balance of elements here. If there's something that is a unique, I'll give you an example that we used to have other people do, but then we took it in-house. I'll give you an example of that because that will give you the thinking. So as we were building campuses, we've been building a campus after campus. That function wasn't in-house. We just would specify the requirements, and just like any company, there'll be an architect firm a construction firm that would build. Then over time, we realized that space itself is uh, something that you have to put your signature over. There's something that it has to reflect how you work and your cultural uh, elements, all of that. A traditional corporate office didn't fit us. That's how most you know, corporate architecture forms would give you. So we decided to do some experiments. We don't we don't actually do these things lightly. We, we decided to do an experiment. We hired a, an architect ourselves and, and built some things. And it came out, well, people liked it. That interior, the provisioning, all of that, people liked it. Then we went big now. We actually have uh, two full-time architects who work on our staff and maybe about four or five civil engineers. And uh, they are actually responsible for our facilities, architecturing architecture of the facilities, our campuses, now the rural initiatives. These architects are now they own that project. That means how do you how does the rural center look like for us? What is the need? What is it surrounded by? And for example, I have said that. We need some educational center as well, or uh, locally, you know, both trainings or software training facilities, as well as maybe some charitable, like we do uh, charities where we actually want to educate local kids. And we want some facilities for that too. So we may actually have some teachers come in and do that. So our architects are, you know, understand our requirements now. These requirements are unique, right? These are not, you know, General requirements. So it made sense to do this. And we are, since we are going to be building what, 20, 30, 50 such things over the next two, three years, we might as well have full time staff to do this. So that was the idea why that function was brought in house. And now you'll see that our facilities have a unique signature. They, they reflect us in a way.
0: So, Sridhar, uh, you've, you've uh, alluded to the fact that, of course, we're in the throes of uh, the pandemic and the, the, uh, uh, the economic crisis associated with it. This is the third um, uh, economic downturn that you, you've been uh, that you've lived through, or lived uh, uh, as part of this yeah. company anyway. With the uh, the 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 early one in 2000, 2000 2001, the first uh, yeah. internet bubble bursting, and the two thousand eight financial crisis, uh, you've you've mentioned a, a quote quote that I found from of yours. We've built this company to survive these bulk bubbles. This is what's taught us to engineer patiently. Yes. because if we rush. We take shortcuts and we pay for it, and then the customer pays for it. Um, Talk a bit about building that philosophy, having now learned that the muscles that you have built now multiple times over and the way in which during good times you plan for the bad.
1: Yeah. Uh, The first bubble was our, you know, that happened in 2001, and we were very frontally exposed to it. In fact, um, our particular segment we were serving, that was the optical communications market. The, the optical networking guys. And the optical revolution happened. The wireless revolution happened. I mean we are on a high bandwidth connection right now. So all that happened. And yet most of the companies, the the, the over, over investment, the mall investment, all of that meant that you had about 90, 95% or 99% of the companies were building that gear died. And we were supplying, we were a, our primary customer base at that time are the optical networking companies as of 2000, 2001, and when the bust arrived. So fortunately, I had studied the Japan, uh, Japan, Japanese bubble of 1989 90. So I knew what bust would mean. So we had prepared. Actually, we had uh, cash in the bank, and we had prepared for this bust, and uh, we knew we would have to reinvent ourselves, and that's what we did. And a lot of our current products arose from that effort to reinvent the company from that original the dot-com telecom bust. It was not just a dot-com bust, it was also a telecom bust, and we were exposed to the telecom sector in a very frontal way. And uh, then, of course, the GFC arrived, and by then, it was clear to me, I mean, if you lived in the Bay Area, you could see the home prices, and you could see all the craziness and and uh, mortgages, the, the whole uh, craziness, 0% down and a negative uh, uh, equity situation all of that it was very obvious that something was going to happen. And even so the bust was bigger than I would have thought. The financial crisis I knew a bust was coming, but there was a huge humongous gigantic bust and um, predictably by then I you know I got used to what the Federal Reserve was going to do. They were going to just print lots of money and try to revive it, which is what they have done now too. And I realized I always teach our employees there are going to be these times where money seems too easy. Those are the times when you have to be cautious because if you make the mistakes now, it will hurt us a lot, and the money price up, money supply price up, and uh, so we were prudent during those 2000 uh, after 2012 or 13. The this thing took off, this bubble, and uh, by 2018, 19 it was already crazy times you now in terms of both the housing in uh, California, and, and in fact, it had started to slow already because of just natural gravity was bringing it down. And then the pandemic struck, and then and everything went for a toss. And, and now the Federal Reserve has again, predictably again, I mean, it's now all too easy to predict this. And the third time now, and they're just unleashing the monetary figures. But the truth is, the problems you see in the US in terms of uh, rampant inequality, inequality is fundamentally now driven by the Fed policy. They are basically enabling more and more inequality because of their monetary policy. And that i don't see how that is good for social stability i mean when you are running monetary policy like that we are we are putting everybody on a treadmill and uh, companies i mean companies buying back their own stock with debt they put their employees on a treadmill to pay back that uh, those loans they're taking private equity has destroyed a lot of corporations in america out of jobs because they put them on a treadmill and uh, so we are basically even distorting the meaning of capitalism now it is financialism that's what we really have in the system, and uh, so as a you know, what do we? What does a company like us do? That's what I often talk to our employees about. I make a frequent uh, uh, posts on these. I say that we have to insulate ourselves to some extent from this, and that means that, for example, avoid all debt. That's a radical thought. The company avoids all debt. We have zero debt, and I also mm-hmm. preach that to our employees. You know, live a way of life that does not involve debt. Then you are actually minimally impacted about the goings on, and this will involve a kind of a sacrifice and a boom where you know I, I joke that nobody ever regrets sometimes. You know, maybe you didn't buy that flashy car, but when the downturn hits, like you don't you don't miss it actually. You're you're thankful that you didn't do those things, right? That's what I I actually tell our people that you know these are things that if you are prudent during those times. The bubble times are the harder ones for people like us because you have to survive the bubble. I always joke that if you survive the bubble, we'll survive the bust. <laughs> Surviving the bubble is a hard one. And and as I said, actually the company has done reasonably well during the bust now. The, the whatever these times we've been okay. I wouldn't say spectacularly well, but you know, decent. I I sleep well at night, which is an index of doing well, right? And we have no debt. So that attitude is what I preach inside. And it's a hard one to live through the bubble because during the bubble, you are an idiot if you don't do partake in all of those things, right? So that is the problem often. But that is why a measure of uh, social distancing is necessary. Or we can call it social distancing from the bubble. So that is how we survive. We, we practice social distancing from the bubble. So I'm more worried about the bubble infection than the corona
0: infection, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's very interesting. I appreciate you sharing that philosophy, Schreiter. Uh Talk a bit about, and I, I'm hearing in your prior answers some of the some of your philosophical points as to how you see some of the indelible marks of the changes we're going through. This is quite an experiment the world is going through: operating virtually, all of us working from our homes, uh, you know, businesses learning to con- to to collaborate in new creative ways despite an inability to be in the same room with with each other, and so on. Um, I, I think I'm hearing you say with, for example, the, the, the way that you, you plan on setting up smaller satellite offices, for instance, in the village you're currently in and many others like it, as opposed to gigantic offices in sort of usual suspect yeah. cases, that, that, that some, some things are changing in terms of how you see uh, your business, perhaps by extension businesses more generally speaking, uh, t- going from this point forward as a result of what you're learning during the crisis. Can you share a bit about your, your insights there, please?
1: Right now, we, I believe that this, this this economic crisis that has accompanied the pandemic is going to be a sort of a major reset of a lot of our assumptions, that this is not just a normal economic recession alone. It's, it's bigger than the depression in many respects, but it's also challenging a lot of our patterns of thinking. In fact, we have to question the role of central banks in all this. We have to call them to account. I mean, I don't believe that. I, I I don't I don't believe that the men and women who run the Federal Reserve are gods. We are treating them like gods with godlike powers, and that is going to have to be challenged, because they they I hold them principally responsible for a lot of this these bubbles actually. Central banks are responsible; they cannot escape that responsibility, and a future generation will completely you know, account for all this. You know, they'll they'll study all the footprints and they can see the fingerprints of the central banks all over. But here and now, for organizations, all of this, trapped in this in this particular, we cannot escape our times, that we have to think through what is real, what is uh, what is likely to survive these bubble periods, and what is fake, fake money, what is created through this this uh, monetary madness. And that is a hard part. And I would say that I am, that is why I'm, a, what I call, a, I try to construct a, a foundation that is strong, that can withstand it. And how do you do this? I look at it and say, well, you are people now, as human beings, we have wants and needs. So goods are needed. And and that's where economics and the provisioning of those comes in. But how much of, for example, take this globalization era now. Where it went off the rails is all the global trade was financed with debt, so much debt. Really, most, you know, and, and this is part of the current crisis where all the debt is now. Now becoming un you know it's never going to be repaid but that's becoming obvious now so the the central banks are pumping more money to you know the system but that unfortunately when that system collapses what happens and uh, i say it looks more like these rural centers closer to food supply honestly closer to where the food is produced wow, we definitely have to cut reckless consumption'm not saying don't consume but we have to cut back on our consumption this is something that no economist would talk about because consumption is GDP. But in the pursuit of GDP, we are destroying, you know. And it's not just the earth we are harming; we are harming the human species ourselves. I mean, look at the 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 lot of the you know the for example, the drug overdose deaths in America. People were killing themselves in large numbers, overdosing themselves. That's a human toll of a flawed economic system, and that was happening in rural areas too, right? And the reason is there is hopelessness. There is despair. These are depths of despair. And uh, all these things have, have to be thought about holistically. Your monetary policy or inequality and bubbles and this extreme concentration of wealth and uh, and then this its uh, of despair. These are not separate phenomena. They are all linked together. And the solution begins with us, begins with companies. Where do we create our jobs? How do we live? How do we live debt-free? All these things that And I believe that even companies have to think through this. It's not just to be serve customers, but we also are, to some extent, holistically we are responsible for the health of our customers. So I have to know our customers are healthy. If our customers are buying our product with lots of debt, which they are not going to be able to repay, at some point we won't have them as customers. They won't be around to buy our products. That's that's holistic thinking, and that is what I'm trying to inculcate in our staff and. these rural experiments are primarily driven by a need to discover a new way of thinking. And I'm, I'm in a way, I'm declaring bankruptcy on the system. In this, <laughs> that's what I call it. And we have to discover new ways of thinking. And and we have to discover them experimentally by doing. I mean, there's not a theory is not going to save us. We have to do experimentation. That's what I'm. So I'm very much partly, you know, I'm a businessman. I'm an experimental economist. I'm going to call it.
0: tell me what are are you learning from you have so many uh clients small medium and large and as you were in conversation with so many of them what are you learning about uh those that are uh surviving those even that are thriving versus those that are not are there some fundamentals that you would point to that i mean of course there are some structural differences if you're an airline right now you could be the best one in the world you're going to be hurting but um, you know, taking those sorts of examples aside, w- what are you learning about the resilience of businesses, as well as kind of the factors yeah. that serve that?
1: Yeah, we I actually uh, through our events have met a, a good cross section of our customers, and I hear from them and I talk to them. And uh, you know, one of the first things we did when the pandemic struck was we put together an emergency assistance program. So our customers, we a good number of customers, we simply froze the subscription. They don't have to pay us for three months. We kept that in you know, a program. Here's the remarkable thing that happened. Uh, while we expected about 20, 25, 25,000 customers out of 400,000 to take it up, about 12,000 did, actually. So fewer than I would have thought. Some customers told us, you know, we looked at this and we realized that you're doing a good thing. You would rather let somebody else take advantage of it than they are not in such a dire of need. So they voluntarily told us. They could have enjoyed it, but they didn't. And then there are customers who said after a month and a half, two months in, hey, you know, it wasn't so bad for us, so turn us back on. Subscription, we'll pay you. That happened too. So which tells you from this, there, you know, there is a lot of that human thing going on. They understand. They you know they could have taken the full three months, but some many customers didn't do it. They didn't take advantage of it because they said, you know, our business is in better shape than in the first few weeks looked and we are we are doing okay. So. So, and that kind of thing happened. So, the, generally the pattern is people who have been prudent during this, wouldn't go overboard, have held up okay somewhat. But that's, you know, and then you have the examples like we work the opposite where, you know, the completely crazy systems and that's collapsing. So that is the, the extremes. But you have a spectrum where, of course, a lot of people who good businesses got hurt if you're in the wrong sector. You're a restaurant, you're an airline, you're a travel company. No matter how good you are, you got hurt. That's a whole separate other issue. But I just, I mean, I think there is that uh, element. And in general, companies that are built lots and lots of debt have struggled. And this was very predictable. Any any, uh, objective look would have predicted this, that if you're going to take on all debt during bad times, that's going to be painful. So that is another thing that distinguishes these customers. So.
0: Yeah, interesting insights. I know that you've also played a role. Um, I was I heard a story, for instance, that you're uh, making your cafeterias opening them up and serving people who are, yeah. um, you know, have food insecurity. Uh, really remarkable things yeah. you're doing to help society, not just your employees and your customers, but just the, yeah. the people in society and the places where you where you live and yeah. work. Talk a bit about uh, the things you're doing from that perspective. So for
1: about two months uh, in India. Uh, now it's kind of opened up so there's no need now but two months in wherever our locations were in our office in india we had about uh, uh, about 10000 meals a day we were serving actually and uh, we had our kitchens open our cooks and uh, and other staff showed up and they cooked and uh, and we had our travel agency who were, who were our drivers originally they weren't drove up they're very mass and protective protection and they delivered the To the needy, and this was actually a serious need, particularly in India, because there's a lot of migrant workers who moved from other parts of India who are stuck without jobs. And so, we had them, uh, we had about 10,000 meals a day we delivered. And now, after the relaxed restrictions, it has gone away. A lot of them went home, and now people tell us we don't need it anymore. So, we actually stopped about a few weeks ago now. So, for about two months, we continued this program. We still do continue some other. Uh, initiatives we started for example i've started a, a homeschool here because the schools are all closed the rural kids are all have no other option the rural schools don't do any online education nothing they're basically sitting at home so i have them come to our farms and uh, they we have a uh, you know some of our staff come here and also there you know some of the teachers so we actually informally engage them we have some kind of a you can think of it like a summer camp in a sense, we engage them in activities, sports and uh, structure some structure, provide them some structure. But the other way, they'll be roaming the streets aimlessly. So we are doing those things now and we are going to expand on this because it looks like schools are not coming back in a lot of these communities anytime soon, which means we have to do this on a bigger scale. I'm trying to get our staff to volunteer in this, do after school or, or, or what, what would have been after school, your after work programs. Weekend programs, all of that, I'm I'm encouraging to set up right now. I'm doing some volunteering myself right now, so I'm learning the ropes. But I discovered uh, how tough a job teachers face when I faced uh, some 30 unruly kids a couple of days ago, and I had to bring some discipline. And uh, and I realized, man, something this is tougher than running a company (laughs) because the kids completely ignore you. They just completely ignore you. Okay, they just completely ignore you, and. Afterwards, I, I figured out, how do, how do I get their attention? Slowly, I, I teach myself, and then I watched the teacher do it. Then I learned some tips.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Shreedhar, talk, talk a bit about where you see the company going now. Um, where do you see the, the, the biggest areas of growth for, for, for the organization? I know, for instance, that you're getting more into enterprise-level customers, whereas the, your beginnings were in the small, medium-sized businesses. Um, Talk a bit about where you see the the continuing, how how you see the the company continuing to evolve. Yeah, as
1: a part of organic growth, we are actually seeing, uh, we are going up market with a lot more bigger customers coming our way now. And uh, as our suite also, see, Zoho runs on Zoho. We have 8,000 employees. We are not a small company with multinational, with accounting, all the complex issues that arise from all this. So we are able to run our uh, company on it. So we know that a lot of bigger customers would benefit from it, and that's what actually like, Timothy has been driving a lot of these initiatives as well, and uh, reaching to uh, larger customers now. And that program is doing well. Actually, we are seeing good traction there as well. And fundamentally, because of our very predictable licensing, the Zoho One model of licensing where we pay a $30 per month per employee, you get access to a whole gamut of software that and and so sort of we... We say you get peace of mind. There's no licensing worries, all of that. So that message is very, really resonating well with our audience. In fact, during the pandemic, it resonates even better. In fact, we closed our largest deal, single deal, in the month of May, and nobody could meet anybody during that time. Actually, everything was done remote, and there was this multi-million-dollar contract signed, and, and all remote. I mean, I had meetings with CIO, CEO, level, CEO level meetings, all online, like this. So you can see that and all. And in this case, as an example, the customer wanted uh, to use the downtime now to, to have some transformational solutions put in place. And they felt that this is the time that they want to be thinking aggressively about their IT, what they are doing. So they contacted us and then this deal proceeded. We had talked to them before, two years before, but things didn't move. But now it moved aggressively within a matter of like four weeks. So that's an example of, I think we are seeing this, fraction, and we are going to see a lot more. At the same time, we are going to stay fruit our roots as well. SMBs, we are going to serve very well. We actually have a very strong, uh, uh, loyal audience there. So we are thinking of you know, launching brands that serve the enterprise customer better. So that might be a strategy we might pursue.
0: Excellent. Um, I want to also ask you as you look to the future, Sridhar, are there certain trends that particularly excite you? Um, how do you think about uh, kind of different areas to, to, to branch into based upon rising trends?
1: Yeah, definitely this whole remote work is a big
0: trend that, that
1: we are on and uh, we have been on, and, and I think this is going to continue for reasons that are also economic, not just the pandemic related uh, post pandemic. Uh, cost of living issues and people want to cut their uh, you know the real estate tax in a big city and you know, all of those kinds of issues I think it's going to happen on the second once you go remote a lot of technological possibilities arise for example augmented reality virtual reality I want to still work as a part of a team but how do I work as part of a team when uh, you know everybody's remote those things actually can be solved there are technical solutions to these there is of course face-to-face interaction but I say, You still want you don't want a lonely person sitting out there and being part of a team, but they still have some local connect. Like that's why we are creating these rural offices, but well, networked with uh, this AR and VR type of things that make this much much more fluid interactions. And I believe that that is actually possible that we can actually do these uh, things in there, and with relatively not you know extreme amount of bandwidth, we can actually do some things with that. We are really right now doing R and D on technologies like this, and that's going well. So those will influence our product strategy. And we are also looking at, I mean, one other technology trend, I am very uh, uh, watchful of, mindful of is this whole end of Moore's law in semiconductor engineering. That means that whole transistor density, doubling every two years or doubling every 18 months. That has kind of stopped now, it's stalled. Its transistors are not shrinking much anymore. They're not doubling every two years. All that is stalled. What does it mean for the whole of, because that is the physics behind all of our software, all the technology. So that means that if, when that stalls, it influences the whole chain of things that are built on top of it. All the way up in the stack, we are sitting in software. How do you rethink this whole stack in the post Moore's law world? And that's an interesting technological problem. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I work on. So, what do we do? in that world. So, those are some of the things that I'm most excited about.
0: Well, Sridhar Vembo, thank you so much for taking time with me today. It's a pleasure to meet you, to get to know your story as an entrepreneur, uh, the evolution of this uh, tremendous business that you've built. Mm-hmm. And I hope before too long, perhaps it'll be safe enough to, for us to be in the same room and to mm-hmm. shake each other's hands. But uh, in the meantime, mm-hmm. this will suffice.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Please join me next week when my guest will be Vittoria Cortella, the Chief Information Officer of Procter & Gamble.